Good evening, all. It's great to see everybody here tonight. I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk about these things. We are dealing with the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And I did have a conversation. Andy told me that I didn't do a very good job this morning. He didn't understand any of it. And that that you guys ought to cut my pay because I am a completely incoherent speaker. That might not be what you said, but that's what I heard. No. (laughs) No, his question, ask the question. Ask the question the way that you asked it. Okay, just a, a short, how do we take everything that's been said in the last couple of weeks and answer it in a short version? We're going to try and do that towards the end of, of this time. But, um, you know, sometimes th- there are some questions that just take a little longer to answer. And in a situation like that, you give the short answer, and the short answer is, well, God created freedom and man performs acts. God didn't create the the evil deed. He created the freedom. And um, man performs acts. And we'll break that down a little bit more next week about what it's going to take for God to remove sin from the world. Um, And I think that'll be a help. But that's the short answer. Uh, When you are answering a question like that, what I would suggest is you give the short answer and say, now I understand that's not satisfactory. So why don't we sit down and talk for a little bit longer? We don't have enough time to to get into it. I wanted to tell you there is an answer, and I'd like to sit down with you and flesh that out. And then just take the hand out and talk with them about it. That's why we're giving you these materials. So what we're going to do is we're going to show the first video, um, and then I'm going to make a few comments, and we're going to go into the second video tonight. And uh, I'm I'm doing a, a Wade new. I didn't feel like studying, so I got a film. But (laughs) (laughs) if you couldn't hear, he said his favorite quote is somebody get the lights. That's his favorite teaching quote. Um, I think these are so well done. And then we're going to discuss it afterward. All right. And close up with a few other items. All right. Let's run the first video. We are all well aware of the suffering and evil in the world. Horrific suffering. Unspeakable evil. How then can anyone believe in the existence of an all-loving, all-powerful God? And if God does exist, why would anyone want to worship Him? Epicurus framed the logical problem of suffering and evil like this. If God is willing to prevent evil but not able, then he's not all-powerful. If he is able to prevent evil but not willing, he is not good. But if he is both willing and able, how can evil exist? And if he is neither able nor willing, then why call him God? In other words, It's logically impossible for God and suffering to both exist. But we know full well that suffering exists. Therefore, God does not. Is this a good argument? 
Let's look at it more closely. Are these two statements logically inconsistent? No. Here is an example of two logical inconsistent statements. David can't be both married and a bachelor. But there is no explicit contradiction between these two statements. So there must be hidden assumptions behind this argument that would bring out the alleged contradiction. Here they are. If God is all-powerful, he can create any world he wants. And if God is all-loving, he prefers a world without suffering. So, if an all-powerful, all-loving God exists, it follows that suffering does not exist. Since suffering obviously does exist, the atheist concludes that God must not exist. But are the atheist's two hidden assumptions necessarily true? Consider the first assumption. Can God create any world he wants? What if he wants a world populated by people who have free will? It's logically impossible for God to force someone to freely choose to do good. Forcing free choices is like making a square circle. It's not logically possible. It's not that God lacks the power to perform the task. It's that the supposed task itself is just nonsense. So, it may not be feasible to create a world populated by people who always freely choose to do what is morally good. So, the first assumption is not necessarily true. Therefore, the argument fails. And what about the second assumption? Is it necessarily true that God would prefer a world without suffering? How could we possibly know this? We all know of cases where we permit suffering in order to bring about a greater good. If it's even possible that God allows suffering in order to achieve a greater good, then we cannot say this assumption is necessarily true. For the logical problem of suffering to succeed, the atheist would have to show that it's logically impossible that free will exists and that it's logically impossible that God has good reasons for permitting suffering. This burden of proof is too heavy to bear. It's quite possible that God and suffering both exist. This is why philosophers, even atheist philosophers, have given up on the logical problem of evil. We can concede that the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of theism are logically inconsistent with one another. Some philosophers have contended that the existence of evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of a theistic God. No one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. It's now acknowledged on almost all sides that the logical argument is bankrupt. But this is hardly the end of the discussion. We still need to explore the probability version of the problem of evil. So that's the logical argument, but what about what they're saying is that if God, if there is evil that exists, then God probably doesn't exist. So what they're saying is, yes, you can't logically prove that God doesn't exist from it, and all of those men cited are atheists there, saying that you can't prove the, the non-existence of God because of evil. So they go to the next step. Well, he probably doesn't exist. Well, you know, probably is a difficult thing to argue. 
And so that's what this next section is about. In part one, we looked at the logical version of the problem of suffering and evil. This argument attempts to show that since suffering and evil exist, it is logically impossible for God to exist. And we explained why even atheist philosophers admit that this argument fails. But wait! It may still be argued that while it's logically possible that God and suffering both exist, it's far from likely. There's just so much pointless suffering, it seems improbable that God could have good reasons for permitting it. This is the probability version of the problem. Suffering provides empirical evidence that God's existence is not impossible, just highly unlikely. Is this a good argument? Consider three points. First, we are not in a position to say with any confidence that God probably lacks reasons for allowing the suffering in the world. The problem is that we're limited in space and time and in intelligence and insight. God, on the other hand, sees every detail of history from beginning to end and orders it through people's free decisions and actions. In order to achieve his purposes, God may have to allow a great deal of suffering along the way. Suffering which appears pointless within our limited scope of understanding may be seen to have been justly permitted by God within his wider framework. Sometimes what we experience makes no sense until we gain a wider perspective and see the big picture designed by the Creator. Here's the second point. Relative to the full scope of the evidence, God's existence may well be probable. You see, probabilities are always relative to background information. For example, if we consider only how much this man weighs, we would say it's highly improbable that he's a world-class athlete. But when we're willing to consider new information, that he's a professional sumo wrestler and a world champion, we quickly revise our view. In the same way, when the atheist claims that God's existence is improbable, we should ask, improbable relative to what background information? If we consider only the suffering in the world, then God's existence may very well appear to be improbable. But if we're willing to look at the full scope of background information to take into account the powerful arguments for God's existence, we may come to a very different conclusion. The third point is, Christianity entails doctrines that increase the probability of the coexistence of God and suffering. Consider four of these. First, the chief purpose of life is not happiness. People often assume that if God exists, his role is to create a comfortable environment for his human pets. They think the ultimate goal of our lives on earth is happiness, and therefore, God is obligated to keep us happy. However, Christianity presents a radically different view, that the purpose of life is to know God. This alone brings true, lasting fulfillment. Suffering can bring about a deeper, more intimate knowledge of God, either on the part of the one who is suffering or those around him. The whole point of human history is that God, having given us free will, is drawing as many people as he can into his unending kingdom. 
Suffering is one of the ways God can draw people freely to himself. In fact, countries that have endured the most hardship often show the highest growth rates for Christianity. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Second, mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and his purpose. Terrible human evils are testimony to man's depravity, a consequence of his alienation from God. The Christian isn't surprised at moral evil in the world. On the contrary, he expects it. The third doctrine states that God's purpose is not restricted to this life, but spills over beyond the grave into eternal life. This world is just the beginning, the entryway to an unimaginable, never-ending life beyond death's door. Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, underwent afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, hunger. Yet he wrote, we do not lose heart, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul understood that life on earth and whatever suffering it holds for each of us is temporary. Our pain will not endure forever, but our lives with God will. Paul was not belittling the plight of those who suffer horribly in this life. Indeed, he was one of them. But he saw that those sufferings will be overwhelmed forever by the ocean of joy that God will give to those who will freely receive it. And the fourth doctrine is this. The knowledge of God is an incomparable good. Knowing God is the ultimate fulfillment of human existence, an infinite good. Thus, the person who knows God, no matter how much he has suffered, can still say, God is good to me. So, if Christianity is true, it's not at all improbable that suffering and evil should exist. In summary, for all these reasons, the probability version of the problem of evil is no more successful than the logical version. As a purely intellectual problem, then, the problem of evil does not disprove God's existence. But even if those intellectual arguments fail, the emotional problem of suffering and evil remains very powerful. If you have suffered deeply, or if you've watched someone you love go through intense pain, you may be thinking, so what if God exists? Why would I want to respond to Him or worship Him? I feel cold and empty and want nothing to do with Him. You're not alone. God knows your name. He knows who you are and what you're going through. God promises to be with you through your suffering. He can give you the strength to endure. Jesus Christ also suffered. Although he was innocent, he was tortured and sentenced to death. His suffering had a purpose, to provide you and me with a life-giving connection to God. Not only does God exist, but he loves you. He seeks after you. He offers you hope. 
and in time you will make all things new he will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away Now, obviously, he didn't use the King James Bible in that verse. And what's amazing is how much better the King James reads, and that's a part of next uh, week's message. But it's that our light affliction, which is but for a little while. the, The language, it's so much more poetic and expresses it so much better. But this this probability argument is, well, how do you know it could be, could be this, how could... All of those arguments, they fall away when we look at the fact that sin entered the world, suffering entered the world because of sin. So look at Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 8. But now God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. By the way, um, Michael, where's Michael at? Your friend got saved today, Jeremy. So, isn't that a blessing? I was able to lead the Lord after the service today. And we talked about this passage. It made me think about it. Um. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. All right, so God is going to deal with all of this suffering and those who have caused it. One of the things that Laura pointed out to me after the message, one of the comforting things, is that Jesus is not only going to, not only did he suffer for us, but he is the righteous judge. And if you have had something done to you that is unjust, that it, that, that it is not going to go unpunished. There really is a God, and he is true. But we, notice what it says, the end of verse uh, 9, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, I hope that now, and you may have already been doing this, but I hope that that it will uh, give a a renewed uh, motivation to this idea. Whenever you see the death of Christ, think suffering. That Jesus entered into suffering for us. He didn't have to do that. So again, look at verse 10. For if we then were enemies, I'm sorry, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, the satisfactory payment for our sin which was his suffering, his death, his blood. Verse 12, 
Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Suffering is in the world because of sin. Look at Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. That that is, the manifestation of the sons of God was that. It's when we can actually look like sons of God. Is anybody saved? Are you saved? You can't tell that by looking at you. That's going to change. Right? The manifestation. That's what we're waiting for. Um, Verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. All right? So the creatures are made subject to vanity. We mentioned this morning that the Calvinists would say that when an atrocity happens, that was God's will. Otherwise, it's purposeless suffering. That's what the Calvinist says. But this says that, that we were made subject to vanity. What is vanity? It's purposelessness. It's emptiness. It's meaninglessness. That, and it's meaningless suffering that we are subject to because of sin. That's why we have suffering in the world. But look at what it says in verse 21. Of course, there is hope. The end of verse 20. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There is going to be deliverance from this suffering. It is coming. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. This earth is groaning. The earthquakes and the, the, the struggles in the world. The, the entire world is groaning. Not only us. The whole world is. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. I thought when we got saved, everything was supposed to be better. Not in this world. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of the body. And we've mentioned this either in Sunday school or on Wednesday night. I don't think we've talked about it much in the, for the whole church. But remember, the adoption is, is yet to come. The adoption is the rapture. That's what we're waiting for, the redemption of the body. Isn't that what it says? Waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So what the passage is teaching us is that suffering is real, suffering exists, Suffering as a result of the fall, it's not a surprise to God. He's not ignorant of it. He is not indifferent to it. He entered into our suffering and suffered for us and has promised us deliverance from suffering. But that can't happen until he chooses to return. That will be the end of all suffering. But it's also the end of all salvation. All right. Anyone who has ever heard the gospel, when the Lord returns, they will never have an opportunity to hear it. Look at Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two.
Look what the Bible says in verse, let's just look at verse 1, and then I'll skip through, but verse 1 for the context. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So the the Antichrist will be revealed. It it, it won't be, you know, I think it's so-and-so. It won't be any of that. There'll be no doubt who the Antichrist is, and he will be worshipped. Now, look at what it says in verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed... I always love this. God doesn't like the teaching of dualism. You know, like you have the, the, the dark side and the force, and you have their equal powers, and you're fighting back and forth against each other. No, no, no. Yeah, there's God and Satan, but there's, they're not equal. So look at what it says. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The word of his mouth and the brightness of his existence. That's all it takes for God to destroy Satan. All right? Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Why? Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. They had the opportunity to receive the truth, but they wouldn't receive the truth. Because they wouldn't receive the truth, now look what happens. Verse 11, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but who had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, understand, if you want to know when the Calvinist system works, it's right here. Because they refuse to believe, now they can't. Now they will, they are not able to believe anymore. That's what the Bible says. That's what's coming. So this idea of suffering, why won't a loving God stop the suffering? It's because when he stops the suffering, it also stops the salvation. Now, there will be people saved during the tribulation. There will be people saved during the millennium. But not very many. There won't be very many left. So the important thing for us in this subject of suffering, if you're in that 10-minute conversation at work, always point people to the gospel. And so let's go to our main verse on this, and it is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. We're going to be back in this passage next week. We'll do the earlier part of the chapter. But look at what it says in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. If there's a loving God, how can there be suffering in the world? Suffering is a result of sin. All right? So there are two, two aspects to that answer, to the short answer. It is God created freedom... 
and man performs acts. So let's get the verses in mind. Keep your place here in 1 Peter and go to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, you know, this is where Paul is on Mars Hill and in Athens, and he is telling the people they're too superstitious. And look at what it says in verse 26. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord. If happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So God ordained the time and place where you would be born, times and bounds of your habitation, when and where you would be born, so that you could find him. If that was in a time of terrible suffering, that's when you could find him. Understand that. This is what a loving God does. Verse 30, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So what God did was he entered into our suffering. The first thing he did was he created you and put you in a time and place so that you could find him. Then he entered into suffering, suffered for you, died for you, paid for your sin, and now he's giving you time to repent. That's the great God that we have. And your worry about suffering, it is going to end. God is, he can and will end it, but that will cause the judgment of most people on the planet. That's the first thing. The first Peter 3.18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The second thing is we have to say, suffering is real. Jesus Christ entered into that suffering for you. He died on the cross for you. Suffering is real. Jesus is not indifferent to your suffering. We have not an high priest, Hebrews 4.15, right? We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. So the passages that you need for the short conversation are Acts chapter 17, 1 Peter chapter 3, and Hebrews chapter 4, and you just show them. Always try to take them to the gospel. I understand that suffering is a real thing. If it's an intellectual problem, there's no problem because you cannot, the problem of evil does not logically contradict God. That's not a problem. If you're having, if you are in suffering, the Lord knows where you are. The Lord knows where you are. He loves you and he suffered for you. However bad you're suffering, he suffered more than anyone that's ever lived. As a matter of fact, he suffered all the suffering of everyone. That's the quick answer. That's the short answer for it. And boy, I hope that we're all saved here. I hope that you've all placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your eternal life. That's our only hope. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for suffering for us. Lord, it helps put our suffering in perspective. Father, help us to be in prayer for those around us who are suffering.